We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and we're just going to dive right into it. Um, Genesis chapter 6, and we're actually going to cover two chapters, Genesis 6 to Genesis chapter 8, verse 19. And I'm just going to dive right into it. Over the last several years, Hollywood... um, has been interested in biblical narratives, and, and they've put them into movies ever since probably the Passion of the Christ and the success that that movie had. Uh, the, the big wigs in Hollywood think, hey, if I want to get rich, let's do a movie about the Bible. And um, we've seen a number of them in the last year. We've seen Paul, the Apostle of Christ. Uh, Samson came out this year, 2018. Then 2014, we had the Exodus with Christian Bale as Moses, right? Um, great Batman. In fact, the best Batman, in my opinion, Christian, a terrible Jewish patriarch, Christian Bale. Uh, terrible. We just see the hypocrisy of Hollywood at its finest there, right? Um, and then in 2014, the movie Noah came out, again, with Russell Crowe. Now, I love Russell Crowe, one of my favorite actors, and I actually just saw the movie a couple days ago. I thought, I'm going to preach on this. I better, you know, watch it. So maybe I have some content to tell you guys about what happened in Genesis chapter 6, right? No, not at all. That is a terrible movie. I mean, who's with me? I mean, it's just a bad movie. It's, it's bad because it doesn't, can't read the, the basics of what the Scripture says. And it's just, it's just a bad movie. So I, I feel bad. But anyways... This morning, we're going to look at the real story, the actual account that actually comes from God's Word, and it's about Noah and the flood. And if you grew up in my generations, knowing the flood was a happy scene in Sunday school on flannel graph paper with happy animals and a blue sky, but right? Who's with me, right? But that's not the account in Noah chapter six, or Genesis chapter 6, but it's an epic, epic story. In fact, I would say it's probably the third best story in all the Bible. Outside of Easter, the resurrection, right? The death and resurrection of Christ, number one. Uh, maybe outside the creation account, Genesis chapter one and two, number two. I would say this was probably the, the third greatest story with a, with a co- little bit of competitiveness with the Exodus, right? But it's right up there. It's at least in the top four. And what we're going to see here is a reboot of the first creation, a, a, a recreation. And it's universal. It's worldwide uh, event that affects everyone and everyone at that time and even has rippling effects that affect us today. What we're going to see is the grace of God on display in the judgment of Christ. We're going to see the grace of God on display in midst of God's righteous judgment to Noah and his family. And this same grace, this same salvation that was available and that saved Noah and his family is also available to us today. We also can experience this grace that we sung about earlier. So let's dive in. Okay, that was cheesy. First, the sin, the sin of Noah's day. And this is going to be basically roughly in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, the heartbeat of this section is Genesis 6-5, and this is what we read. Follow along as I read it. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That is an, a, a, an incredible indictment on mankind. Now, now we can say, hey, maybe, maybe if we're talking about Hitler or Osama bin Laden, this verse... I can get it. It applies. That's, those are evil men. But he's not talking about an evil man. He's talking about all of humanity. That's a crazy statement. All of humanity was wicked in every intent of their thoughts 
was evil continuously. That's the decline of sin that we've seen. But verse 11, we see this sin. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, because of this wickedness, because of this violence, because of this corruption seen in every man and woman and child, we see that God is grieved. Sorrow has gripped his heart. Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And later on it says, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, what this is describing is it's just trying to describe the depth of God's sorrow as he looks out and sees what happens to his creation. He's not, he's, he's not repenting that he did something wrong, but the focus is, is so that we can explain it as humans. He's trying to describe, Moses is trying to describe the depth of sorrow and sadness that's in God's heart. He, he once looked at his creation and said, what? It's very good. And now, as he looks, all he sees is wickedness and violence corruption, sexual immorality, and it grieves his heart. He's sorrowful. The creation he created is rebelling in ways that are unnatural, that are outside their intended purposes, so he has to step in and do something. And being a righteous judge, he comes in to judge. Verse 7 of chapter 6, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things, and birds of heavens. Verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, total annihilation, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we see the depth of how bad it got and how bad did it get? The worst time probably in human history. One pastor sums it up this way. He, he looks up the first six chapters of Genesis and he says this. In Genesis 1 and 2, very good. In Genesis chapter 3, bad. In Genesis chapter 4, worse. In Genesis chapter 6, total depravity. You see the downward spiral that we've been talking about, the theme of Genesis from the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Again, total depravity is summed up in Genesis 6-5. Total depravity, when you hear that word, we're talking about the comprehensiveness of sin affecting humanity. That it affected every aspect of Adam and Eve and everyone from them. Every aspect of our human faculties, physically, emotionally, spiritually, our, our, our heart, our mind, our soul, our will, all tainted with sin. Everyone. No one is exempt from this. This is everyone. It so penetrated our heart and soul that it rendered us helpless and incapable of seeking good or doing good or seeking the Lord. That's humanity's plight. That's how bad it got in Noah's day. Even the good deeds that were done back then were sinful because it showed up in sin in our pride or our self-satisfaction. And we know this too. This just this morning, just this morning, I'm sitting here, you know, I get here early and I, I, I walk in the sanctuary to, to kind of make sure everything's set and there were some you know, communion cups and some trash. So I started picking up the communion cups and trash. Why? Because I wanted it to be nice for you guys, right? So you're not looking at weak old communion cups, thinking like there's some kind of major disease about that. Matt Whitney would probably go nuts with that, right? Being, so he works at the CDC, you know, disease control and stuff. Anyways, and I, saw, I started picking stuff up. 
And I thought, man, wouldn't it? I thought, this, I'm doing a good thing here. Wouldn't it be awesome if someone came in and said, wow, look at Aaron. What a great servant, right? I mean, so even in our good deeds, our, our, our pride, our self-satisfaction raises its ugly head. We get this. Well, well, how bad did it get? Well, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 kind of gives us a taste. They use all these big general terms, but this is the only kind of illustration it gives. And, the, and this, if you've been in, in the faith at all or studied your Bible, you know this is a very difficult section of Scripture. In fact, one of the most difficult in all of Scripture. There's some crazy stuff going on in these verses, and we're just barely going to touch on it, so let's read it. But the whole just of this is the sexual immorality that has come upon this world. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took their wives as they choose. You hear Genesis chapter 3 language in there, right? The Adam and Eve saw that the fruit looked good and they took it. You see that here as well. Then verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh, and his day shall be 120 years old. The Nephilim, that's the the, the key characters in here, the sons of God, the Nephilim, these, these interesting people or creatures, were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, I mean, talking about a sexual reference there, they bore children to them. So we, we see here that this is a, uh, something outside of what God designed uh, for procreation in Genesis chapter 2. And there's two basic views, and the idea is like, who are the sons of God? And that's the big crux of who, who are these people, the sons of God? Well, scholar says there's two, two views on it. One, the sons of God are fallen angels. And the other view is that the sons of God are men. And in that view, there's two or three different views of who these men are. Some think they're the line of Seth, some think they're great kings, some think they come from the line of Cain. We could spend a whole bunch of time talking about this. But that's not the point. The point is the wickedness and the sexual immorality hit an all-time low. The total disregard, again, for the parameters of the Lord God's creative design found in Genesis chapter 2 has been obliterated, the, the lines. I personally think that I lean towards the sons of God being fallen angels. If you want to follow up with me, we can talk and I can give you my reasons. But they're both, both have pros and cons. But again, the point is the total depravity. Uh, so that's part of it. It seems like this unnatural sexual immorality was the straw that broke the camel's back for the judgment and the flood. But there are other couple reasons of judgment highlighted in Genesis chapter 6. Generally, 6-5 again, a total rebellion of humanity and constant wickedness. 6-11, a corruption and a violence that described the earth at every level of human society. This is a dark, bleak place. So it got me thinking, well, what has to do with us? It has a lot to do with us. Because immediately my mind went to Matthew 24 talking about the second coming of Christ. And this is what it says about the second coming of Christ. The day of Noah, as compared to our culture with the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 37 says this. For as in those days, the day of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will be. As we look back and we look at what characterized the days of Noah, this corruption, this violence, this wickedness, this sexual immorality, and we fast forward to our day, we see that in these areas, in these categories, our world is escalating, is it not? It's getting 
too like the days of Noah. Sexual immorality, of course, we're the first generation probably in the history of mankind that has redefined marriage. In the history of mankind, we define, redefine what is marriage. It's been estimated as an old study, because so, I don't know if anyone watches primetime television anymore, but it says this, that the average year, the average American will view on primetime television, they'll, they'll, they'll watch over 9,000 sexual acts or implied sexual acts, and 81% of those are outside the bonds of marriage between a husband and a wife. For our kids, that's what we are being inundated with. Wickedness, corruption, violence. In a study in 2014, there's roughly 195 countries in the world. Guess how many were at war with each other or had a civil war? 184 of them. So that means in 2014, there were only 11 countries that were at peace and didn't have any kind of of war going on. And then now we just look at the rest of the society and ills when we talk about wickedness, corruption, violence, human trafficking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then here's another one. Here's another kind of indicator, the days of Noah, that kind of translates to our day. And it's not sinful. It's actually good. It's multiplying. It's it's population growth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the earth, in Noah's day, scholars estimate roughly, and there's a ton of information on about a bunch of these stats, there could have been 750 million to 4 billion people on planet Earth. Think about that. We usually tend to think of back then as thinking like just a handful of, of humans existed, right? But think about it. How could that happen? Well, we know that people lived like 900 plus years back then, right? So think about that, ladies. 900 years of making babies, right? No. I, if I asked my wife, she'd be like, I'm good for three, you know, in those 900 years, right? They had no pain medicine, no epidurals, nothing. So 900, you can see how the population boomed. But after the flood, it took till the 1800s to hit 1 billion people. And today we stand around 7 to 8 billion people, and some predict in 2051 we could be around 11 billion people. So you see this population boom that's happening. Now what's happening in the day of Noah, and that is happening here. All that to say is that there's several similarities that Matthew and Mark and others, when they talk about the second coming of Christ, they say, be watchful, be on the lookout. One way we can be watchful and on the lookout is we can look at our culture and we say, hey, in the days of Noah, it's, it's, it might be getting to that point. Now, no one knows when Christ is coming uh, and the exact time or hour. Obviously, we've had a ton of people predict and they've, they've never come true. Scripture says no one knows. But again, the point is, let's be watchful. Let's learn from Noah's day that in the days of Noah, if it looks like that, Christ's coming could be imminent. So let's keep our eyes out. So we see the sin of Noah's day. So that's it. That's the bad news. Now here's the good news. Second, the salvation of Noah and his family we see in 6.9 through 7.24. The salvation of Noah. Here's where we see the grace of God just put on display. In the midst of this coming judgment of the flood, we see the grace of God on full display. Underline, circle, highlight Genesis chapter 6-8 in your Bibles. But Noah found favor, or another word for favor is grace, in the eyes of the Lord. That is the first time that grace shows up in the Scripture. And from here on out, it's going to be a major theme of the Christian faith. The grace, the favor of God. You see, God could have picked any family on the face of the earth, but He picked Noah's family. 
It is unmerited favor. Noah did nothing to do to deserve this. It was God's grace that says, I see the wickedness, but I'm going to fulfill my covenant that I made with Adam, and I'm going to save this family. The grace of God. And because Noah was shown grace by God, Noah, we read in verse 9, that he was righteous, that he walked with God, and that he was blessed. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. That means he, he followed after God. He was blameless. And notice, blameless in contrast of who? In his generation. Not that he was sinful, sinless. He was sinful. He was Adam. He was part of 6.5. But when you compare him after the grace of God came on him, he started to follow the Lord. As he compared himself to others in his generation, he was blameless. And Noah walked with God. That's a familiar phrase, right? If you were with us last week, you, we know that we saw that Enoch walked with God. And we saw there was a couple characteristics that, that that described. What does it mean to walk with God? What it means to have faith and believe who God is, who He says He is. And, and, and also then once you have that faith, it produces something in you. It produces you as an ambassador, a proclaimer of the gospel and, and of God's word to others in your circles of influence. And we see the same thing with Noah. Noah, by faith, it says in Hebrews chapter eleven seven, followed the Lord. And then also in 2 Peter 2 through, it says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher. He was a proclaimer of God's righteousness. But we also see another aspect of what it means to walk with God, and that is obedience. It's obedience. The Lord commanded God, uh, the Lord commanded Noah to build an ark, and Noah built the ark. In Genesis 6 2, it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In 7, chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah walked with God by obeying his commands. And it's the same with us. If we want to walk with God, first by faith, we trust in him as our Lord and Savior. And then that produces something in us. It produces us a desire to tell the world about Jesus, whether we're in the Czech Republic or Fort Collins, Colorado. And then it does something else. It causes us to follow the Lord's commands. Now, I think it's safe in here to say that everyone, 100% of the time, loves to obey the Lord. Who's with me? Miss Tina? Okay. Uh, Yes. I think it's more accurate to say this, that everyone in here loves to be obeyed 100% of the time. Who's with me on that one? I think that's the more accurate description. And why do we love to be obeyed? Well, because... There's, there's a lot of reasons, and there's some, there's some good ones, right? I mean, if, you, if you're, you're at work, and, and the boss comes and says, hey, man, I want you to, 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 to grab a team, and I want you to give you this assignment. I want you guys to fulfill this project. You're like, great, I'll, I'll lead that. And when you, ha- you come up with the plan, and you tell people to do, hey, do this and do this. Why? Because if they do that, the plan will be executed, and things will get done. And, and when that happens, it makes you feel good, Right? Or if you're a classmate in school and you got to do a group project and, and you're the one leading that and you have a plan and you think, hey, this is, this is the plan. I think if we do this, 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 we're going to get an A. So, so let's do this. And when you, you give the assignment to you know, your, your classmates and they do it and it happens, you're like, man, it feels good, right? I mean, that's, that's good, right? We, we see unity. We see it's a, it's a good thing. So take that thought and then apply it to our walk with Christ, and, and to me, it kind of just changed the dynamic. I never really thought of it like that until I started thinking about it. Now, how much do we like to be obeyed? And it's like, oh, translate that to now walking with the Lord. You see, because our plans, we think that they're good plans, and, and they might be, 
But we don't know that for sure. We, we don't know like when we plan that in the end we're going to get that project done, we're going to get that A, or we're going to you know, make that progress. We don't know that for sure. We could be, it could be a complete debacle, right? I'm just probably speaking from experience in my plans, right? But with God, it's never a debacle. In fact, we know what his word says, that everything that I command you to do is what? For your good and for my glory. That's a promise. That's not, a, a, oh, maybe it might be for my good. No, it's a promise. It will be for your good. Therefore, for us to walk with the Lord is to obey him. Now, I know there's a battle there. There's a heart issue there. But take, maybe just look through it through that lens. How much you like to be obeyed, know that it could lead to blessing. But when we obey the God, it always leads to our goodness and to our joy. It's an incredible promise. We see in Luke eleven twenty eight 28, it says this. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You'll be blessed. You'll have joy. You'll be happy. Will there be some tough times? Yes. Not perfect, right? There'll be some valleys, but even in the midst of those valleys, we know that the Lord is doing something, so that helps get us through that time. We've seen a rhythm throughout Genesis as we've been going through it. When God speaks and His commands are obeyed, what happens? Blessing. This is what we see with Noah. We see first the grace of God in Noah's life. Second, we see the grace of God supplying the plan and the means of Noah's salvation and his family's salvation in Genesis 6, 14 through 7, 24. Noah makes an ark. He obeys God's command. This will be the means. This is how God is going to save Noah. It's going to be through this ark, through this ship. And not only Noah, but the animal kingdom. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it insides and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubics or 18 inches. Its breadth is 50 cubics. Its height is 30 cubics. Make a roof or something that may say window for the ark and finish it to a cubic above. And set a door of the ark and its side. Make it with a lower section, a lower, a second, and third deck. So three decks. What I want to do real quick is is give you guys some apologetics evidence on this. You guys are going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to have coworkers. You're going to go to school tomorrow. You're going to have classmates. Say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Here's some cooler talk. Well, we talked about Noah and the ark. And instantly, I, if someone asks you, say that and see the response. This is probably going to open up a door. And they're going to be like, oh, is that story even true? Let me give you some, some ways to say, yeah, let me show you some, some, how this is not such a far-fetched idea after all. Modern measurements. The ark would have been about 450 feet long. That's one and one-half football fields long. I'm going to have some pictures up here. Yep, there's some pictures. This is actually in Kentucky, Answers of Genesis. You can go, and it kind of built this ark on the biblical account at some level, the measurements anyways. So it will be about 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half. It will be about 75 feet wide. That's about the width of a soccer field, and it will be about 45 feet high. And that is three stories high. So you got 450 feet long, football field and a half, 75 feet wide, width of a soccer field, and 45 feet high, three stories. The inside capacity would be have a total deck area of almost 100,000 square feet. So this is a massive ship. You see it right there with all the people. So question number one, could all the animals fit on the ark? Would that be a possibility? And the shorter answer is yes, with rooms to spare. Again, the ark was a little under 100,000 square feet of deck space. There would be 1.4 million cubic feet of storage space 
in that boat, which is equivalent to 522 train cars, right? The cars that trains pull. 240 sheep, medium-sized sheep, could fit in a double-decker train car. So you times that, 522 times 240, and you get over 120,000 animals that could possibly, the size of sheep, could fit in this ark. So there's, again, a ton of material and studies on this. Some say that at the time of Noah, on the low end, there were about seven to 8,000 different kinds of animals. And on the high end, there were 35,000 different kinds of animals. So you got to multiply them by how many? Because you need two. Yep, two. Good job, Peter. Two, because you need a male and a female, right? So you multiply that. On the low end, it could be 16,000 different kinds of animals. Or it could be over almost 80,000 kinds of animals. Now also, remember, these are just mainly land-dwelling animals that you need to put on there. The, the fish of the sea, the octopus, the mammals like whales would be swimming in the waters. The birds, they could fly out. Some would nest on the water. Some could hang out on the decks, right? So you need those. And also remember that you didn't need full-grown animals. Baby elephants, baby giraffes could go on the ark. Again, male and female. And... You didn't need every variant of every kind of kind, right? So in other words, for dogs, you just need canine. You need a male and female canine. And from the canine, you get dogs, you get wolves, you get dingoes, you get coyotes, etc. So could all the animals fit on the ark? The short of the answer is yes. Second question, how did Noah get all the animals to the ark, right? I mean, how many of you guys asked that question? We were sitting there watching the movie with Maddie, and she's like, well, how did the Lord get all the animals to the ark? Well, the Bible answers that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 20. Look at that. It says this. It says, every sort shall come into you, and you will keep them. The Lord is going to bring them. The Lord put a GPS in certain animals to come to the ark at this specific time. We see this in the animal kingdom all over, right? Bears hibernate, right? Birds migrate. North, south, south, north. Why? Because God has implanted in their DNA to do this. We know how the snail got to the ark, right? Remember that? By perseverance, right? The snail got to the ark, right? All right, good. All right. So how did the animals get there? The animals got there because God brought them to Noah. Noah didn't have to go around the world to try to get them. Question number three. Was it a regional flood or a universal flood? This has kind of come up in a lot of debates uh, recently. Was it a regional flood, local, or was it worldwide? It's worldwide. As we, we study, we're looking at this word all, 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 all sinned, all wicked. All means all. So God covered the flood, the, 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 the earth with waters all around it. It's a whole earth worldwide flood, I believe. And there's a number of evidences for this. Let me just give you a handful. One, from history. If you look at all these different tribes and people groups all over the world, there's over 200 plus that have accounts of a worldwide flood. And again, they didn't have internet back then. They didn't, right? They, they, they didn't talk to each other like we can talk to one another. These were, these were people groups that were by themselves, that had no interaction with other tribes in a lot of areas. So let me, hear you, let me give you some percentages of the similarities in some of their stories. Um, 95% said it was, a, again, it was a, a water flood. of them had this idea of a a family being saved in this flood. Um, Many of them had about eight people, and many of them had the form of the name Noah in their accounts. Um, 70% also said they were saved by a boat. 
And then 77% said their animals were also saved, and there's more percentages in there. So you have all these different evidences from all these different tribes and people groups from all over the world that have a similar account. So that's history. Second, the fossil record. The fossil record. And there's a ton of evidence on this. We find fish and other sea creatures where we wouldn't normally think to find them. Like 7,000 feet up in the mountain, you have these fossils of fish and other sea creatures. You have them in the middle of Nebraska and Michigan and other places all over the world. You have the Great Salt Lake. How did that get there? Possibly by a worldwide flood. But then thirdly, the evidence is there. If it was just a regional flood or local flood, why build an ark? Why would you need an ark so big and so massive to house all those animals? All the other animals could have just migrated somewhere else on the dry land. There could have been a flood in that region. They didn't need to build this massive ship for eight people, right? So why have that? So those are just some apologetic things, ways that you guys can think through. And there's so many more questions like all those animals, how they take care of the smell, right? That was another question Maddie asked, right? Those the little, little girls in their little minds and how they think. It's a beautiful thing. But all these different questions, there's answers. There's a ton of information. Go ahead and do your study. It's not so far out there where there's not evidence. There's plenty of evidence that this took place. But again, here's the focus. The focus is that the ark is the means and the vehicle of salvation. That's the point that we're seeing here. It's the means, the ways in which God saved Noah through the ark. There's only, uh, I think, only one other time where this word ark is used outside for Noah and the flood. And it's in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. What is that? What is that referring to? It's referring to the little basket that Moses was placed in. That's also called the ark. And we also notice in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, that was covered in pitch. So this little ark that saved this little baby, right, encapsulated all the waters, all the predators couldn't get to this little baby. Through this means, this little ark in Exodus chapter 2, this little basket is a, a vehicle of salvation for Moses. Now that's what I'm looking for. We, we, we get the privilege to look back because we have the whole counsel of God. So we get to look back and what we see is the ark and also Noah points us to Christ. It's actually a type of Christ in a number of ways, but let me just give you one. The ark was graciously provided by God to save Noah. Noah didn't say, oh, there's a flood coming. I better build an ark. No, he had no idea what was coming. This was God's plan. This was God's design. He is the one to say, Noah, build an ark because this is what's going to save you. So the ark was graciously provided by God to save Noah and his family from judgment And Christ's life, death, and resurrection was graciously provided by God for your salvation and my salvation. That's how the ark points us to Christ. Again, Noah by nature deserved to be destroyed because of his sin against God. But God graciously provided salvation for his family through this ark. This was the means in which they would escape the flood. And likewise, left out in our natural condition apart from Christ, we're, we're, we're sinful, and we need to be saved. And therefore, God graciously provided Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. He was your substitute and my substitute. And those of us that repent of our sins and trust in him and what he has done, we shall be saved through the vehicle of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Amazing grace. But notice this, to receive the salvation of the ark, 
Noah had to believe God, right? Again, the ark was provided by God, but Noah had to believe God. Noah had to actually what? Step into the ark. Him and his family had to walk through the doors. It was their responsibility. God provided the means, but you had to walk into the ark. Just as Noah had to walk in the ark, it's our responsibility. Jesus gives us this command to us. Come, those who are are heavy laden, who are tired, who are, are burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. The reason why we can have that command is because Christ provided that rest for us through his life, death, and resurrection. It was his work, but for you to receive that rest, you must come to him. You must believe in him by faith. This is your responsibility. And notice also, how many doors did the ark have? Had one. It had one door. Most, uh, it had one door, which also points us to John chapter ten nine, where Jesus says, "I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved." You see, there was only one ark that saved humanity. There, there might have been some other guys out there say, "Hey, there's that, there's that one ark," but hey, there's many different arks to, to, to save you from the flood coming. There, there, there was probably some guy saying that, hey, yeah, Noah's doing his thing, but he's kind of crazy. Look how big that is. He's gathering animals and all that stuff. That guy's crazy. Here's, a, here's another way. Here's another ark. Come, come join my ark. Just like we have people today say, hey, there's, there's multiple ways, multiple roads of salvation. You don't have to just go through Jesus. There's, a, there's other ways you can be saved. No, there's only one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the door. If anyone enters by the door, he will be saved. So you want to be saved, you enter through Jesus. You come through the door. So that's the question for us this morning, for you this morning. Have you entered through the door of Christ? Is he your salvation, the means in which he saves your soul? This is the ark. And finally, quickly, the third sign to Noah is God's covenant in Genesis 6, 18, through really Genesis chapter 8. It says this in verse 18. It talks about how the Lord made a, a, a new covenant with Noah. And we're going to look at that in much more detail next week. But he made a new covenant. During the flood, we read about God's grace again in Genesis 8, 1, where it says this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. God remembered. It doesn't mean, when it says that, it doesn't mean that like, like God forgot about Noah. It's like, oh, there's a, there's a world down there. Oh, there's Noah down there. I, oh, geez. Thanks, you know, thanks for reminding me, whoever that was. It doesn't know what it means. What it means is God remembers. It's like, now's the time for me to intervene. The flood lasted roughly, scholars argue, about a year, 365, that's 371 days in total. Uh, from the building, the rain's coming, the, rain, the, the flood subsiding, et cetera, et cetera. It's about 300, about, about a year, some scholars mine. And what we see here in Genesis chapter 8, again, it just it gives us, again, the picture of the recreation, the second creation from Genesis 1-2. And we see a number of different indicators where, where, where there's, you see cohesiveness between the two. One, the world was covered in water. Right? Remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, that the world was encapsulated by all water, the whole world. Same here in Genesis chapter 8. Then we see in this wind in Genesis 8 too, it talks about that God sent forth a wind. That, that word wind is the same word for spirit. And we see that the wind kind of dried up all of the water. So we see that this wind was around 
uh, at the same time. We see that man and animals are, are, are presented back on dry land. We see the number seven mentioned in a couple of different ways of dealing with months and, and years and days, etc. And then finally we see the creation mandate given again in Genesis eight seventeen, where it says this, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And that's what Noah did. And that's what his family did. They obeyed God. They walked with God. The commands to build this ark. God saved them through this means of the ark. And then he dried up the land in chapter 8, and then they sent him out to multiply and fill the earth. And because of Noah's obedience and his family's obedience, we are here this morning. Again, we talked about a couple weeks ago, or, or last week, that we can trace our lines all the way back to Adam and Eve, and that is correct, but we can also trace all of humanity's lines back to Noah and those eight people on the boat because they were the only ones that survived this. So because of Noah and his family and the obedience they walked with God, we are here. But now we live under the new covenant, right? The new covenant, the covenant of Christ. And that covenant is to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make disciples throughout the whole world. That is our command. That is our mission. That is what the Lord calls us to obey as Christians. And so let the crossing take up the mantle of obedience and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So as we see the escalation of sin and wickedness around, that we can be the bright light where we live, work, and play to our friends, to our family members, and that we can show them that there is, there is, there is a means, there is hope, and it comes through the man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this ancient story, this epic ancient story. And Lord, there's so much more that we could talk about and say. But the point that we want to see is that in the midst of your justice, your right justice, Lord, you're a God of mercy. You're a God who loves his creation. And you're a God that, that made a way of salvation. And so, Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning that is that is outside of the ark of Christ, Lord, we pray that today is a day that, like all of us have done in the past, that, that are yours, that are convicted of our sin, and we see our need for a Savior. We see that there's only one way, and that is through your Son, Christ. Give that person that measure of grace that will help them repent and believe. And for those of us that have, Lord, let us let's be thankful. Let's rejoice that you shined your face upon us and gave us grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will take away all of our sin. Lord, we thank you for that. And now may we be proponents of grace to our friends and our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.